You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everybody. Peter Maravellis here. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual extension of the City Lights event calendar. As is customary at the outset of each event, I would like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatush Ohlone peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Tonight, we are happy to be celebrating a new book by Douglas Kearney. We're delighted to have him back in the house. The book is called Optic Subwoof, and it's published by our friends over at Wave Books. It is a compelling collection of talks that Mr. Kearney presented for the Bagley Wright Lecture Series in 2020 and 2021. In these lectures, he offers incisive critiques exploring the connections between violence and entertainment. He interrogates ways in which poetry, humor, visual art, music, pop culture, and performance alternately uphold and subvert this violence. Mr. Kearney examines the nuances surrounding Black visibility and its aestheticization. In this collection, he establishes himself as a dynamic thinker as well as a poet. Douglas Kearney has published seven books of poetry, including the book Show, published by Way of Books in 2021, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, the Penn Award, and the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. His other titles include the award-winning Buck Studies, Someone Took the Tongues, Mess and Mess and amongst others. He has received numerous honors for his work. These include a Whiting Writers Award, a Foundation for Contemporary Arts Cy Twombly Award for Poetry, and many others. Mr. Kearney teaches creative writing at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and makes his home in St. Paul, Minnesota. Joining him tonight is Tisa Bryant. Tisa Bryant is a writer, educator, and editor. She teaches at Cal Arts. Her areas of interest include fiction, nonfiction, mythologies, cross-cultural, cross-genre hybrid writing. She is the author of the book Unexplained Presence, a collection of hybrid essays, and is the co-editor of the cross-referenced literary journal The Encyclopedia Project, and collaborates with Ernst Hardy on the Black Book series of visual mixtape love letters to Black people and Black culture at the Hammer Museum. Her writing has appeared in The Evening Will Come, Mandorla, Mixed Blood, Lana Turner, amongst others. This year, she was selected as the Bedell Distinguished Visiting Professor of Nonfiction by the University of Iowa's Program in Nonfiction. She's working on a book-length meditation on grief, longing, desire, and archival research titled Residual, which is forthcoming from Nightboat Books, and an essay fiction, The Curator, slated for publication by Semiotext. She makes her home in Los Angeles. Before we begin, I would like to let you know we're going to be posting links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard with which you may purchase copies of Optic Subloaf, as well as other titles by Douglas Kearney and Tisa Bryant. We'll also be featuring a Q&A towards the end of the evening, so please do post your questions and comments in that same chat function. So join us now in offering a warm welcome to Douglas Kearney and Tisa Bryant. Welcome to you both. Such a pleasure to have you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter. Ah, yeah. Ready? Do I'm all right. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm doing okay. great. Thank you all so much for being here. And thank you, Tisa, for um, joining me uh, tonight and engaging in conversation. 
Yes, yes. I have a few words I'd like to say before okay, we get started. Cool. I just I like a couple of things, that. couple of things. <laughs> um, and thank everybody for being here. Thanks so much, Peter and City Lights. And thanks also to Catherine Bresner and Wave Books. Really excited about these works. Um, you know, might as well hold it up to the camera. You should get your own right here. <laughs> yes, the Optics Subwoof. I'm also showing off my fingernails that I painted in honor of this beautiful book cover, <laughs> not my post-its. Uh, and this is also show, which I may be talking about this evening with Doug, uh, his latest book of poetry, also from Wade. So get involved with this, as Gabrielle Seville would say, get involved. Um, so what I would like to say here is that, and I wrote it down because off the top goes wandering. It's a pleasure to be here with you all tonight to experience Douglas Kearney's latest movements in word, the visual, the visible, and the sonic. Because to say that we're here to listen to Douglas's work is to neglect the engagement of our whole embodied selves in this encounter. At least for me, it's difficult to be in a mode of passive receipt, to be reserved or even contained when Doug does his thing. I haven't come up with the appropriate language yet, so I'm saying Doug does his thing uh, here, uh, but perhaps the thing I can say is that Doug does perform as a poet, as a word artist, but the verb perform feels flat and the phrase word artist feels a little contrived. And really perhaps poet just and still does it all as it did for Norman Pritchard or Jane Cortez, Wanda Coleman or Kamau Brathwaite, whose flesh, whose breath, whose typographies and fire spitting, whose kinetic layered and invested love and care of for and in black life and culture gave their poetry the dimensions of bodies and minds entangled, entangled theirs, ours, the ancestral force of forming our present, the burgeoning silhouettes emerging ahead of invisible time, sounding out the future. So yes, Doug is a poet. If we understand poetry as action and activation by means of constant naming, undoing, questing, acting up, getting down, line dancing, eulogizing, and fixing, fixing as in locating, as sometimes in correcting, and in the black getting ready to. And perhaps by that, I don't mean stutter, which is cool because if you know Doug's work, you know that stutter comes through. But I do mean Becoming, which right now with Douglas's latest works, show and optic subwoof really has my attention, this becoming. I really felt that that's the vibe I was in, uh, in reading optic subwoof and show. And so if Doug's Ars Poetica, Mess and Mess and invited us into past processes and intention, as well as enduring roots and byways of aesthetics, show and optic subwoof together and separately give us his poetry in the funky dilated time of becoming and coming through to something else alongside, with, in, the blood and the word, the thought and the conjure of all kinds of family and all kinds of kin. And I'm here for it as always, and specifically tonight, I am here for it. So let's welcome Douglas Kearney. Thank you, Tease. That's what I wanted to <laughs> Woo! Thank you, Tisa. Um, 
and thank everybody for being here. I really appreciate you. Um, you know, uh, we were joking about this before uh, we started tonight. Um, that hashtag werewolf goals now has a, a very different <laughs> kind of kind of feel to it because of Herschel Walker and uh, you know and and uh, you know Barack Obama um, saying that you know the goal to become a werewolf you know is something that one should abandon at age seven and I will say then that you know I I just came late I came late to that. Um, so you know I'm, I'm i'm a late bloomer in terms of dreaming about becoming a werewolf um, um so i'm going to read those pieces because it's a full moon and uh you know it's it's possible that you know maybe by presencing that i can sort of outfox herschel walker maybe maybe or maybe he'll watch this and, and learn some techniques so hashtag werewolf goals um is about uh two things mostly um it's about uh Lycanthropy, like my lifelong ambition to become a werewolf. Um, and it's also about prepositions um, and how prepositions demonstrate the way we can understand um, physical presence in space and therefore suggest action even without verb, suggest relation even without naming other figures. So in the kind of early part of that lecture, there's a series of exercises. Um, so I'm going to read that series of exercises um, on ways to manage different lycanthropic um, uh, logistics, right? Modes of transformation. What I've come to understand is that the demonstrative nature of werewolves, which is to say their externalized transformation from person to not only person, is articulated most simply in prepositions. Should we take person and wolf as potential syntactic subjects, we have the start of our werewolf logistic. It's best we remember that a werewolf isn't a werewolf when they are hairy and clawed. They are a werewolf because they must turn hairy and clawed. The metamorphosis, then, is not becoming a werewolf. It is a demonstration of their lycanthropic nature, often commanded without any agency on the werewolf's part. Now. These constraints are specific and not intended as metaphor. While becoming a werewolf may involve agency via a spell, consensual exposure, or years and years and years of devoted practice, until one is no longer a werewolf, the compulsory shape-shifting the werewolf undergoes is not an apparatus of state law, cultural convention, or cooperation even under duress. Next, I wish to offer that the end of the transformation indicates an optical demonstration of the werewolf logistic. It is not a culmination of lycanthropy itself, lycanthropy itself, but a demonstration of its presence. So when I use the term demonstration or optical demonstration, I only mean to mean that an event of external metamorphosis is complete. Person into wolf. The person moves to occupy the body of the wolf. Such an arrangement may require the presence of an actual wolf that becomes a vehicle for some aspect slash component of the person. This is the cat spell. I mentioned a cat spell earlier uh, when I was in fourth grade, so therefore nine years old. I memorized a cat spell uh, that with a, I shall go into a cat with sorrow and a sigh and a black shot, and I will go in the devil's name. I while I come home again. And I learned that spell from a book in my um, pup, in my school's library um, in uh, fourth grade. Um, so yeah, that was pretty rad. And I told that spell to my brother and we grew up Lutheran, which is a very mild form of Christianity. And so I told him, he was like, yeah, Doug, maybe 
don't say you're doing anything in the devil's name because you know you're Lutheran. I was like, oh shit, yeah. That's a good point, big bro. All right. <laughs> so this is the cat spell. Going into a wolf is going into a cat. I didn't want to go into a cat or wolf for that matter. The werewolf was no sinewy shaggy suit to wear. Such an arrangement described a separation between me and the wolf. I meant to be one thing. It's possible to imagine into as the person's body producing a wolf body in its place. Into here takes on the sense of composition, not placement, but the ambiguity is too slippery. Into exercise. Focus on the idea of a suppository, a narrow tapering shape that dissolves the same color you imagined yourself to be. Or using muscles only, Compress your body into a suppository shape. Dissolution will come. And this is the image of the, this kind of diagram of into wolf. So I'll share the diagrams as I go. Um, this next one is a, a wolf inside person. So there we go, this one here, wolf inside person. The beast within arrangement. The person is an ambulatory kennel or pregnant with a more or less mature wolf. The wolf shelters slash gestates there waiting to emerge inside exercise. Fix in your mind an idea of a small thing getting bigger. It could be an object or sound, an odor or memory. It can grow as large as you imagine yourself as a place to be. Then it must grow somewhat larger with you still there to imagine it. Or open wide your mouth and tense your esophageal tract in an expulsive attitude. If possible, run your fingers down your sternum, feeling for the latch. Wolf with person or a person with wolf. A conjunction and could be better, but with more expressly suggests collaboration and amplification. Prepositions also seem to me to imply activity in a spatial context, necessary in the case of metamorphosis into optical demonstration. The relation ray person slash wolf seems one of physical separateness but bound through some other intimacy, or perhaps one serving as an appendage to the other. With exercise, go low to the ground, move in a circle, inhaling deeply for to smell your own motion. You may do this all with any form of assistance or via visualization. Person by wolf or wolf by person. Look, there's so much closer there. That's so nice. Look at that. It's just an intimacy is growing. Um, <clears throat> Where with presents an intangible connection regardless of proximity, by denotes an adjacent nearness, though there stands also a connotation of support. The one by the one, their separateness seems foregrounded. Relational language of with intimates a movement toward union, distinct from standing by someone. By may also indicate authorship, that the respective person or wolf has composed the respective wolf or person. This makes by compelling. By exercise. Think on falling, but in this thought, be caught by what you call wolf, that you catch too as it catches you. Maws, arms, paws, palms, a lap, a back. On a moonlit night, lean sideways far as you can without falling. Way to spell or hold your fingers to the middle knuckles, knead these makeshift paws against your flesh. Person against wolf or wolf against person. 
Our pair are separate, though here in vexed contact, the person and wolf touching each other close, like with and by, against introduces affinity by way of its absence. The wolf and person are in conflict over what? Generically, recall control, against exercise. I am against and against relation, thus against against exercises, a conundrum. Wolf up person, wolf up person. Who acts here? Who has thrust wolf up person? Agency and balance are at odds in this arrangement. Up, used this way, has a vernacular denotation of violent action, to go up someone's head. Is this the aforementioned curse, the punitive werewolf logistic? In excess of up's dynamic activity, the lycanthropic up is also a preposition of verticality. Wolf lodged high up person, difficult to reach. Up exercise. If you get on your hands, your knees, if you then breathe out, making your spine a convex line, tucking your bottom jaw in toward your sternum, if you finally breathe in, invert your back and cast your gaze upward, what? And if not, imagine something not you, buried in you, that part of you is above it, as the sky, you've been told, is above you and was above the thing buried in you, even before it was buried there. Here is a wolf down person. Wolf down person, how like up that it troubles balance. Dominant US culture has prepared us for a down werewolf logistic with its morgfuls of dead metaphors associating sublimation or repression with depths. Feeling down, a trauma deep down inside. You know how quickly we can rhyme associations of down with pathology? The wolf here is down there and it was driven or has dug itself in like up to resist contact beyond optical demonstration, which does not require equity. Down can bring to bear a sense of social abject Objection. Down exercise. Okay, a thought exercise. Inside a relation which includes outsiding, you are the outside inside of which goes what others cast out. What is outside to you being as you are inside as out? Or be as still as you consider still. Do not think wolf any more than you think person. Slowly, deliberately engage your core muscles as if to shit backwards. And I'll do one last one. Person under wolf or wolf under person. Here we go right here. There we go. Person under wolf or wolf under person. Let's acknowledge the verticalist inequity from jump. Yes, even bearing that cultural rhetorical order, I mean to be less figurative. One needs to be so with lycanthropy. The teeth are real. The fur are the claws, of course. One physically under one as a fluid formation need not be a re-rehearsal of domination. If a horse and its rider could exchange roles at different points of a journey, for example. Under exercise. Push-ups with additional weight strapped to one's back, if manageable, make a good preparation. Do not, however, push your body away from the floor, but imagine you are pressing the floor away from your body. In fact, focusing thusly may be more effective than doing push-ups at all, whether or not you lie down prone on any surface. So, and with those, uh, those, uh, exercises so yeah you know if, if anybody out there you know is a is a personal friend of of uh, of you know herschel walker you know probably needs a little cheering up right now or something so you know let him know that optic subwoof can help him achieve the goal um and 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 battle vampires um you know for all of our account i mean like i mean you know 
misguided. It's kind of an anti-hero when you think about, I mean, like the vampires are out there and we're going to need everybody who's willing to become a werewolf to join the werewolf brigade that will protect us from rampant vampirism um, and the next zombieism. And maybe if we're feeling classic, you know, like uh, mummyism. I'm, I'm down uh, for a different, this is a, a different uh, uh, preposition where <laughs> down in this parlance isn't the preposition we think it is at all. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> great reading, great reading. Yeah. Uh, and I love the the illustrations as well, uh, and what uh, that you're engaging what I've always called in writing, uh, especially writing with film, with uh, with alongside like the, the kind of prepositional proposition. You know, mm-hmm. what are what are we doing with others when mm-hmm. we're writing, or at least for myself, what am I doing with others uh, when I'm writing? you know, other filmmakers, other writers, other visual artists, because that's part of my practice. And I really love uh, how those kinds of questions kind of still persist in this lecture. And by that, I just mean uh, that the the other is the self mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said that this is not a metaphor. So I'm also kind of like thinking about the, 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 the werewolf as, you know, real inner self um, or other self, shadow self, um, true self, um, conjured self. I mean, there's just so much going on and just knowing you for as many years as I have and seeing you perform mm-hmm. or, or be a poet, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. you know, is there is a kind of a, a transformation. There is uh, an, an other energy uh, and an, another physicality, um, a, a ferocity, um, quite frankly, that I've observed. So it's, it's kind of like surprising and not surprising to have, you know, the, the werewolf, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, kind of formalized. <laughs> and, and these exercises for not just becoming, but living with, working with, integrating. Um, I guess I'm trying to get at a question because right now uh, I'm babbling. But <laughs> no. maybe a, a question and an observation might kind of circle back to what I was saying about the prepositional proposition mm-hmm. and what you do with others, even if that other is you uh, in writing. I, and I know you, you told us not to think about this metaphorically, but <laughs> there's always something else coming through you and coming through your texts uh, mm-hmm. graphically in terms of register. And so I, I wonder if there's something more you can say or add if this resonates with you about the werewolf and the, the mm-hmm. monstrous and the, the preposition uh, mm-hmm. that you've kind of fleshed out in this awesome lecture. Thank you so much, Tisa. And I mean, like one of the things just to kind of like, you know, circle back to you for a second, honestly, is when I think of your work, you know, the 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 preposition is off is oftentimes alongside or next to the subject that you're that you're engaging. And so that kind of sense of like maintaining a presence there. Um you know, even if that presence is unexplained, right? Right. That idea of the peripheral, 
how can one be the agent that like fills the page, but is also on the margin, right? And I think there's something really fascinating about that technique. And it makes me think a lot about the relationship to audience um, and how audience can become an active participant and still be an audience. Like, you know, if we're thinking about the kind of cliche about watching a horror film, like one that would feature a, a, a werewolf and the kinds of thing, ways that an audience might react to that. Like some audiences, you know, the cliche being like, you know, an Afro-diasporic audience, uh, particularly one in the United States will sit there and go like, don't go down there. No, no, no. You are a participant at the same time that you're not in it. And so that relation between the film at that point right, transforms based upon, you know, who's watching it, right? Like, yeah. like an audience that does not talk back is having a very different relationship with that film. And the question could be, does the filmmaker author that, right? Or is mm -hmm. that something that the reader decides one th or the viewer decides? Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that's been an important part of my work, um, you know, is something I talk about a little bit in the essay, You Better Hush, is you know the kind of visual dynamics of the work as a kind of like a, a performance of typography. And I call it performative typography because it's typography that reminds you that it's typography in a way that oftentimes conventional poems, uh, conventionally formatted poems not. And yet what I always insist is that every poem that's ever typeset is telling you how to read it. It's telling you what to do with it. And so I think that that idea of an active and engaged audience um, or, or an active and engaged reader, which is something that you talked about in your experience of it, which I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I am interested in a kind of, I guess in some moments, I, I, I really favor this, this image of me standing in front of something, like maybe with like my shirt up like that. Um, and then like, right when the something is is getting very close like it's a barreling bull or it's a you know it's a, a lion charging towards us oh policeman's bullet what i would oftentimes like to do when i think of in my reading is like i'm standing here and i just kind of go like this ha, ha now it's yours right like this thing that i was talking about that you think is just um an idea over here is actually trying to be in this room exactly trying mm -hmm. to be in this space and so through the kind of destabilization of my audiences um a lot of times that destabilization visits me first um and so when i'm composing these pieces um you know lectures poems there is something that unsettles me about them or about what i'm thinking about and then just with the great generosity um, that, you know, my, my Lutheran heritage has engaged me to have, I share that destabilization and unsettling uh, uh, quality with all of y'all um, so that we can be in that space together. Um, um, and that kind of, um, to find your footing in, an un, in a destabilized space um, is a certain way of trying to find equilibrium, but it remains dynamic. You don't yeah. get to stop. You don't get to sit. You have to keep moving, whether that's physically or mentally um, or, or emotionally. You're constantly having to keep moving. So I think that that's kind of my relationship in a lot of ways. It's like, here's this thing 
coming at you and you think it's me because I'm just reading, but actually it's this whole other history. It's this whole idea of our social configuration, our relation. What is the sociality of a poetry reading? What is the sociality of a poetry reading when you are in some kind of antagonistic relationship with your audience? Which makes the suppository, the the into and the suppository very funny. And I'm glad that that's where we started. You know, it's just like, you're going to melt inside. (laughs) and become the color of your choice and I was sitting here I know um (laughs) Todd saw me I was sitting cackling um with (laughs) muted uh because it was so funny but then also um you know as it's an exercise but it's also uh you know unlike the the alongside right there's I almost called it a transubstantiation, which isn't quite right because in the mm-hmm. the the drawings that are so great, um, there's a a two-ness or threeness. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's not the the total absorption of of the wolf into the body or of the body into the wolf. There's mm-hmm. uh, we we get to be kind of in media res in both mm-hmm. the exercise and in the, you know, looking at the diagrams and then in thinking about what's my relationship to this text? What am I being asked to do? What am I choosing to do? And, you know, readers are always being asked these questions and answering them, you know, in a kind of inchoate state, like we're not consciously going, I am now going to choose to be fully immersed as a suppository. Um, <laughs> right. Or I am kind of against, uh, we, are enticed through language where, you know, the optic subwoof, woof, the subwoof, I also, you know, the optic is there, but the subwoof is this kind of sonic, uh, you know, that loud colored silence that mm-hmm, is also mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the book. You know, there are mm-hmm. other kinds of uh, uh, kinds of wavelengths that are moving through these lectures that are asking us questions as readers, as people as citizens, if I dare, um, and uh, as humans, as sentient beings. Like there's all of these kinds of questions that uh, are being asked, but we're also being invited into spaces of thought and sound and vision. I did notice that all of the um, lectures in Optics Subwoof are dedicated to in different ways or in conversation with, here we are, prepositions never stop, mm-hmm. um, never with stop. other people. So there's an ecology of knowledge here mm-hmm. as well that's working that I also love and made me think about. Um, there's this uh, wonderful essay by M. Norbessi Phillip called mm-hmm. Who's Listening? It's mm-hmm. in uh, her book, Frontiers. Um, which is out of print, um, but I think maybe you can still get it. And in it, she says that uh, who's listening is about like race and uh, uh, critical thought uh, and receipt of a work by an audience, whatever that work may be. And she talks a lot about plays and about um, poetry. And (laughs) she kind of figures that there in, in her writing, there are these two figures who attend the work and who she's in conversation and tension with. One is John from Sussex, right? Emblematic of 
uh, Canadian slash colonial uh, uh, education. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. other is an older uh, African or African diasporic woman uh, named Abiswa. Mm-hmm. And there's this mm-hmm. kind of thing that's happening between John from Sussex and Abiswa in terms Abiswa. of uh, audience the making of the work, the receipt of the work, and her contention that any work is only completed by an audience member, by a reader, by the viewer. That's how the work is finished every single time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know, like I'm, I'm thinking about that with your lectures and audience, but also the becoming and the transformation and where we place ourselves in the werewolf. I, I think it's just all... Um, I, I, what am I trying to get at? It's not just the werewolf because it's also the other and it's also the monstrous and it's also blackness. You know, there are a whole bunch of other things that are happening that uh, we contend with or don't. So I, I wonder if you think that there's a way in which audiences don't get to kind of worm around as much mm. um, and in their finishing of the work because of some of the, the explicitness of some of the exercises here, at least in this lecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll stop there. Cause I, I feel like okay. I just wandered through a deep <laughs> wood. Um, I, I love walking with you. So, you know, that oh, works well, with me. You're so generous. Thank you. <laughs> but do you see what I'm I saying? Mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, how do we, like, how do we fix in the way that you talked about, you know, earlier, how do we fix the art, the the audience into into space? You know, uh, one of the lectures, um, I killed, I died, is about like the poetry reading as a space, and a kind of a central argument in that piece is that in most U.S. American poetry readings, it's not the poet who has the power; it's the audience, because the fact of the matter is, um, the sign of power in that space is the ability to choose not to speak the poet you know or to to communicate in that way not to be you know not to limit it that to the only way that one can be to utter or to or to project in these different ways but no the audience gets to uh just evaluate the poet the poet you know is present in that space right an audience member can make noise and sometimes that noise can be very supportive um but I've I've been to read. I had a reading once in San Diego where, in, in the middle of a poem, man, the audience just jumped up and yelled "parasites" and just stormed out. <laughs> like like that that was the power. Like that was the power in that moment. And the only reason we think it's the other way is because of the kind of social convention of the poetry reading, right? So mm-hmm. what fixes an audience to their seat when they're in a public space, right? Mm-hmm. It's manners. It's a desire to project. Um, like a certain kind of, uh, you know, a, 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 a social literacy. An um, erudition. An erudition, yeah. Like, you know, like, oh, well, of course, I'm going to listen to this poetry reading and it's going to be wonderful. I'm so glad I'm here, right? Um, that, you know, I, I, I married a book chucker. So like, somebody who has thrown books across the room. Um, and so like, what holds the audience? <laughs> Do we know the this? Reader? Right, right. No, what holds the reader in place is a different set of things, right? And so, like, you know, one of the things if I think about the sort of prosodic um, aspects of my work, I'm really going for sort of physical sound. In other words, the sound that the words literally make, as opposed to the sounds they would point to. So, like, 
generally speaking, and this isn't programmatic, but generally speaking, um, I don't want to say a bird singing, generally speaking, because then I feel like you kind of leave the poem. You start imagining birds and things like that, right? I'm much more interested in putting sounds together um, that still signify in a particular sort of way so that you're both kind of held by that milk tongue, the Donald Hall milk tongue experience, right? You're held by that at the same time that you are being told something or interacting with something. And the pleasure of the words in your mouth, right, might go right up against uh, the displeasure of the idea, the concept being fed into you. So my thinking around, you know, how do we remove some of the wiggle room from the audience in a live context, it's to constantly re, uh, kind of like revise what a poetry reading does, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, in I Killed, I Died, I talk about a reading where, um, you know, I was standing, it was in Alabama, and uh, they'd given me a bottle of water, and at some point, the bottle of water falls off of the music stand. And so at that point I dropped to the ground, right? I'm, I'm introducing a poem, bantering. And then that happens and I'm like, okay, wait a second, excuse me. And I dropped to the ground and I start arguing with the water bottle about how it was embarrassing me at this reading, right? And we get into this fight, right? The water bottle and I start fighting and we're like grappling and wrestling, fighting. And I'm going down the aisle of this gallery reading and I'm fighting this water bottle. And finally we get back to the ground and then, you know, we kind of get to a sort of a detente and I, and, I, and, I, and I walk back to the music stand and I say, I'm so sorry about that. Um, but water and black people have had a very complex relationship. And then I started reading a poem about the middle passage, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, those are the kinds of moments, the moments between the poems are the way that you can fix the audience to their seat, which isn't to say that like, I've been to poetry readings where, where a poet isn't doing any kind of pyrotechnics. They're just, they're controlling their breath and reading this poem and you're fixed to your seat, right? Mm -hmm. But the kind of sense of wiggle room you know, like, I want to get out of this, I think is to actually induce squirming as a part of the entire event. And so these moments where we can sort of rupture um, the expectations of a poetry reading, um, uh, to me, point to the poetry reading as a set of social logistics. And I see Lara Mimosa Montes in the audience. Um, and this is something that I've seen in her work as well, um, a particular piece that she did in uh, Tucson at the Poetry Center. It's kind of ways of rupturing the audience, uh, you know, a way of sort of saying, you said you wanted this, let me give, give you more than a little bit and see what happens. Um, if I may pivot just a little bit uh, and then we'll get into more conversation. Are you gonna read again? Oh, I can read again, yeah. Okay, yeah. maybe read again a little bit and then we'll get into yep, some yep. conversation with, with our lovely, lovely audience. I just wanna ask you a question about sentences. I don't think we've ever really talked about this, um, no. you know, and this, I mean, I don't want to get into genres and categories because you're a librettist, um, you know, you've worked with different kinds of texts, um, but most people probably think of you and experience you as a poet, mm -hmm. perhaps even as they're reading your prose, you know, mm -hmm. uh, an mm -hmm. optic mm -hmm. subwoof. For the most part, these lectures are composed of very lyrical, very sonic, but they're sentences. And I wonder mm -hmm. if you could just uh, talk about 
those, that, you know, poetry and prose as modalities. Um, mm -hmm. There's something mm -hmm. that you kind of hinge uh, between those two, you know, and I'm still in this kind of mode of thinking about uh, becoming and transformation because that was a vibe mm -hmm. that I got throughout Optic Subwoof uh, about mm -hmm. the kind of making of new work uh, and <laughs> new thought, you know, that like just kind of being with you as you're thinking. But yeah, so that's my that's my question about about the sentence and the line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I want to I want to answer that before I read before I read something else. So, um, so first of all, um, to me, the kind of constraints of language that I engage. Well, let me, let me start. Every time I finish what I would consider a, a major project for myself, um, like either that's an entire collection or I oftentimes work in terms of poetic sequence. What I what I literally tell myself when I'm done with that is like, OK, now I need a new syntax. I need a new syntactic relationship because I need to create a different way of sort of interfacing and thinking about thinking about these these subjects. Right. Thinking about my relationships to this, the, the questions that I'm asking. Um, and Buck Studies comes to mind because a lot of the poems that I've been writing prior to Buck Studies, um, you know, were these visual poems. They were dealing with very much a, uh, you know, like like what we look at as a, as a um, you know, poetic line, you know, as, 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 the, as the sort of ordering principle and not the sentence uh, primarily. And so, with Buck studies, I really wanted to sort of reinvestigate the sentence. And so like there's a poem, in, a series of poems called Ecce Caniculus, um, you know, Behold Rabbit, um, you know, which is basically the Passion Play, um, Stations of the Cross, uh, retold with Bra Rabbit in the position of Jesus, right? And so that poem is is, is all the construction of that poem is every sentence is kind of a stanza, right? So everything was at the sentence level. Um, and it's just interesting to see what you can kind of get into uh, when you change the sort of range uh, with which you are expressing your ideas, like the sort of fragmentation um, that attends some of my earlier work and is kind of reinvigorated, reinvestigated in some of the newest work that's these kind of Photoshop collage pieces. Um, like that's like really fragmentary. I'm sort of denying myself um, the sentence as a tool. I'll just show you, show you like, so a, so a poem like this, right? It's just made up of, of uh, just made up. Oh, only, no, it's, it's primarily made up of fragments. Um, some sentences running through as well. The sentence to me feels like you get uh, like you get a, like maybe a poetic line is a dagger, but a sentence is a whip. I mean, you know, like maybe it's something like that. Maybe there's something about the sinewy possibilities of a sentence, the way it feels like it's, like it's kind of unwinding and yet simultaneously tightening and winding you in as it reels out, you're being reeled in. Maybe that's something about the sentence that I like. I also like the kind of performance of a register of critical theory, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I'm not alone in that. That's something that's really, really been like a lot of us are seeing that. A lot of us have been doing it. Some people have been doing it for years and 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 years. And years, and years. But I love the possibility that comes with those kinds of syntactic structures, along with what happens when you kind of introduce, and I mean, introduce for the first time in the world, but introduce in your poem, 
addiction register, a register of diction that feels like it belongs, you know, in a metaphysical or critical theory sort of space, but you throw that right up against, um, you know, a syntax that suggests um, a double jointed uh, uh, language, double jointed syntax. Double jointed syntax is something that I think of as a reference when people you say broken English. It's not broken English, it's double jointed, right? So like um, what is possible um, ontologically, epistemologically, I'm in my office at work, so I have to say shit like that. What is possible in those ways that a sentence that says, I ain't got no money, what's possible with that sentence when one doesn't assume that it's bereft and doesn't know how to express, I don't have any money. Those are not the same thought. They're not the same idea. There's something different that happens. And so I'm interested in that at the sentence level. Um, and I'm interested with that in, 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 the, in the realm of the poetic line. The last thing I'll say about, about that, because, you know, like, this is what happens. Tisa asked me a question or I asked Tisa a question. And three hours later, you know, like, that's the thing. Um, like, creating the poems that are collaged changed what a, a, a completely composed a Microsoft Word poem, changed the syntactic possibilities of those poems. Because suddenly I was aware that I could make meaning with things that are sort of like colliding with each other in a different way than a standard sentence. But that taught me that I could write a sentence that seemed like it was collaged. And in that space, I was suddenly able to do a lot of different things. It's very sim similar to like my thesis at CalArts, which was an opera in a counterfeit um, language. I created this yep. language. And as soon as I was done with it, I was like, once you've, and it's prepositions again, once you've sat and tried to figure out how an invented culture would use prepositions and what those prepositions would be, suddenly when you come back to English, it's just kind of like, there is no spoon. Like you're seeing all the green <laughs> coal falling in front of you. You're sort of like, okay, well, I can do this and do that here. So yeah, that'll still make sense. And that's a thing that happened. Um, so yeah, so yeah. So that's what I think about in terms Ooh. of sentence. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, like my brain just went all over the place, but I do not dare say anything else. Um, I'd love to hear you. Is everybody cool with having Doug read a little bit more and then we can open it up and keep chopping it up? Great. Let's do that. All right. So I'm going to read uh, the last uh, few uh, pages um, well, the last few paragraphs from I Killed, I Died, which was the first uh, first lecture I wrote for the series. Um, shout out again to Badly Wright, Charles Wright, for support, and I'm looking for all her support. Um, <clears throat> and so this is this is kind of like the last last couple of pages. Um, and I've just talked about Nina Simone and the Black Took Collective. And prior to that, I talked about I talk about Tisa Bryant, who uh, came up with this formulation um, from Anami Cesar. Uh, uh, essay, Dancing Bear, right? So I've just talked about those things. These are the last few pages. <clears throat> and it's a, it's a, and I've just been, okay, anyway. Yet the bill will come due. 
A joke can be a yoke if your grip on it slips. And unsettling one audience is fine. But if it costs you each time, the audience is fresh. You aren't. The destruction accrues. You might be up in Chicago clipping your lip, telling a joke that's going to take everyone in the room with you someplace hot, ramming your body against the bank stage, two taller people easily mounted in Boise, Idaho, then dragging yourself around it, a boardless Pope L, to the stairs upstage, where you claw yourself up there, downstage to the mic, pull yourself up there before saying, I'm Douglas Kearney. At that gig, 2019, Boise State University, they gave me bottled water, which is good because all that crawling had made me powerful thirsty. It was life water. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the bottle, the way life water uh, is, 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 is uh, marketed, it's L-I-F-E, but then W-T-R. You can tell that a place, that something is very uh, kind of classy and contemporary and upscale because they can afford to throw out the vowels. Um, look around your neighborhood, new restaurants, new coffee shops, it doesn't have any vowels in it. You know that that's like a really nice place. It's like the sans serif gentrification letters or like painting your door on your house a different color than the rest of the house, like an accent color that kind of shows that this gentrification going on. So yeah, it's like that. No vowels is that. So life water. Uncapping it, I noticed life water's brand name is stylized sans the A and E. What a delight. I ad-libbed. There's no A and E here. So I guess this is life water. Don't worry. I'll provide your A and E for the evening. My people are great with arts and entertainment, especially when brought to you by water. Every so often, during the reading, I'd improvise a life water middle passage commercial. And at one point I realized I'd have to pour some on my head. To choose not to would to be to be in a poetry reading and its criteria instead of seeing the poetry readings arrangement and running north for the parking lot. The poems took care of themselves and I didn't take care of anybody, not even, I guess, Douglas Kearney. Which brings us back to the funny, 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 I killed, I died, banter, self-destruction, and the poetry reading. Douglas Kearney has no business at a poetry reading, yet poetry readings are central to the business of poetry, a concern. The pain that concerns so much of my work, reckoning with intimate biological loss and social ones may make something happen in a poem. I, it may consume a poem. It may be all there is, but that poem is not a bottle. It cannot contain any of my pain. That's what I'm for. Like you, I show up when that poem being all it is somehow isn't enough. So I come now to make poetry, poetry that includes me and my body, the space and the audience's bodies, whether that's to tell awkward ass jokes, give trigger warnings, describe the rhyme, the rhyme scene, run into concrete masonry, scream till I taste nickels, wheel a recycling receptacle through the audience to collect a dropped iced tea bottle, play the role of dead body at countless murder scenes, have a domestic argument with a book that thuds from a music stand, explain why I did what I did, read the poem like I'm lashing the bear, being lashed, watching it dance, dancing, being grappled and grappling like I'm trying to kill to keep from dying. I've seen how this ends if I keep being in this same joke. I saw it the first time Time I almost puked while reading the poem Well Hung. I thought, if I throw up, I need to keep going. But then there will be vomit on the stage. And what, Douglas Kearney, just what will you do with that? <laughs> Ha 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 
Thank you very much. As always, amazing, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. So many things. Uh, keyword endurance, keyword uh. stamina. <laughs> yes. Um, as promised, opening this up uh, to questions. Good time to do it. Hello again to everybody. And um, let's see. I thought, okay, City Lights Live, perhaps Peter, um, <laughs> asked if there is a Lippian aspect um, to the approach of uh, collage. I think he's mm -hmm. talking about in optics subwoof uh, collage does run quite a lot through um, all of the lectures. Do you want to mm -hmm. speak mm -hmm. to that? Oh, absolutely. So I learned about the Ulipo in grad school um, when I was a student at CalArts, um, you know, back when it was just called the MFA in writing, um, you know, uh, not creative or critical, just writing. Um, and so that was when I first encountered the Ulipo. Um, and Interestingly enough, um, I guess in some ways, that was when I first heard the name Ulipo, but I had encountered the Ulipo uh, through Harriet Mullen's work. And I didn't necessarily know that that was what I was seeing at the time. Um, Harriet Mullen is just kind of like, you know, patrons, patron saint, uh, just so important to me. Her work is like everything to me, um, how it works with the concepts of signifying, how it works with the ability of to do what I call serious play. Like there's serious play in her work. Um, and so I think about the Ulipo um, as being sort of foundational to the sort of the, the, the conscious development of my poetics and my prosody. Um, you know, I think about what happens when you impose um, a constraint upon um, a poem. Oh, I'm sorry, that just sounds weird because that's what a sonnet is. It's an imposed constraint upon a <laughs> poem. Okay, my bad. Like, but when you like, but when you like take something relatively arbitrary and you use it to determine <laughs> that a sonnet is 14 lines is actually pretty, pretty damn arbitrary. Okay. No, no, no. Okay, but you decide, you decide that you're gonna do a thing to a poem so that it alters your relationship to the voice. Uh, the fact that a sonnet kind of has to have an argument that sort of creates a counter. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, 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 uh, what were you talking about? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ulipo. Um, so what became really interesting to me, uh, I did one Ulipo experiment um, in a course at CalArts. Um, the one where you, it's, it's the, one of the most famous Ulipo experiments, the N plus seven, where you look for every noun in the, in the piece and you, and you, um, you substitute you know, you substitute it with a word, with another noun, usually seven nouns away above or before or after that one. And what I learned about that was just that the structural, that the structure of, of, of a sentence, um, especially, especially when it's found text, that you can recognize the kind of, well, I could recognize and, and maybe others could recognize that this was you know, the the Declaration of Independence first, you know, like first five sentences, even with all these nouns sort of replaced, um, because there's this kind of architecture that's there already. And of course, like that kind of chimed with my ideas about, you know, the familiar, like, the, like folk culture, like popular culture, that the reason why 
Um, one of the reasons why we can be uh, disappointed with, um, you know, like superhero franchises, there's several reasons why. There's also several reasons why they're kind of fucking awesome. But like one thing that can be interesting about them is that the audience oftentimes comes with a relationship to the story ahead of time which actually gives you a lot that you can do to subvert or lean in or, you know, reinvigorate um, something in it. So I think that when we're dealing with kind of, um, you know, what we, what we see when we do an N plus seven of a line of received text that's kind of exists in public imagination, you begin to realize that, oh, like the incantation of this phrase, of this sentence, of this passage is still kind of there, even though the nouns might want to convert it into nonsense. So there's a sort of sense, right, of what the sent of what syntax will bear and what the imagination of people who might be familiar with the text um, or even just passingly familiar with the text will bring to it. And so that kind of opened things up for me. And I say that the other um, approach uh, that I really, uh, I enjoyed um, from the Lipo was the lipogram. People might be familiar with that. Um, oftentimes they're either, uh, uh, they oftentimes focus on the vowel. So like there's a, only one vowel you're allowed to use. And of course, Christian Burke, um, you know, Unoya does this, Kathy Park Hong's uh, work has done this and others have done it. Um, uh, but I also favor the one where you ban the usage of, a particular letter. Um, and then I oftentimes as an assignment will have students rewrite or cover a poem, but suddenly they can't use any of the words that have the letter E in them or whatever. So yeah, that's the Ulipo. May I? James Cagney has a great question mm, that sure. I am going to read. But before I do, and I'm sorry to be a space hog, um, I want to just also add mm. as a response to the question for Doug, which is absolutely presumptuous of me, but I want to read something <laughs> from his book uh, oh, to collage nice. that does something else that is and is not Ulipian, perhaps. I don't know. Um, so I am on page 13 of Optic Subwoof in the first lecture that is um, You Better Hush. So Douglas says, the history of the African diaspora is one in which brutal decontextualization followed by violent recontextualization are the start of our what had happened was. What is it to reckon with what it, what it is to be displaced then replaced only ever as out of place unless we've been put in our place? I don't know if I read that right, but I'm gonna keep going. This forced <laughs> movement is similar to collage, a mode of production I have long found fascinating, perhaps because it seems to chime with an idea of Black subjectivity. Perhaps it was once mere coincidence, though for nearly 30 years, collage has been for me a methodology, a praxis. Last year, however, I came out of the shower thinking on this section of this lecture. I was standing in steam, daydreaming some insight about collage. Instead, I came up with the merely provocative. Humanity's first encounter with collage was death. And even this was not what I legit thought. Death isn't necessarily worked, since death can happen without a consciousness arranging it, a presence that seems, uh, seemed a requirement of art, which was where I was housing collage. Thus, humanity's first encounter with collage was a murder scene. And there we were there. And there we were there. 
got it? And there we were there. <laughs> I thought at the moment, a Veltnai monochrome invaded with the ever red RED saturations of the body's interior. An ancestor making this encounter with the murder victim draws back before leaning in. The ancestor thinks this body shouldn't be here. So in thinking about collage also, this decontextualization and recontextualization of the body. And I also remember um, there's another line that I didn't note where it comes from in uh, Optics sub Subwoof, but it made me laugh, but I also loved it. It doesn't go here, yet here it goes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So in yeah. thinking about collage in that way, um, there's a syntax to it. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. that play that is also through the book about uh, visibility and visuality. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like the vi visibility and what we're able to kind of read on a plane or in a space or in each other's faces on each other's bodies and visuality about the looking yeah. and the placement. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for reading that passage. I'm going to get to James's question here. Love you, Douglas. And actually, Ooh, you know, James. James, do you want to speak for yourself? Because I don't have to ventriloquize like this, um, <laughs> you know. It's an imposition here through Zoom, but I'm happy to read the question. I'll do that, and maybe if James is still here, he will say more. When developing new poems, what pushes the poem away from being lines and verses into performative typography? Oh, that's such a great question. And what it is is simultaneity. 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 Um, so, like, if you take your typical word processing program. It is very good at making interruption. You can have somebody saying this and then something else happens. But oftentimes it is it is uh, less less accurate, less less adequate for immediately creating simultaneity. And I had a really great conversation uh, um, about you know whether somebody like HD was writing with kind of simultaneity. And I and I think that that kind of conceptual simultaneity is great. But I'm but. I'm being much more basic. I'm being really this kind of question of how can I say this? How can I say um, help if um, rocket overlaps it? Does that become rocket? Does that become that? Is that rocket help? No, it's not rocket help because they're happening. It's like, like simultaneity to me is usually when I most quick immediately think that it's got to move into the sort of performative typography register because I want the reader to have to kind of think about which one, if they spoke it, would come first. Because the beauty to me is that in most of the poems that use performative typography or the sort of collage poems, it's actually easier for the reader to kind of imagine how it would go than it is for me to do it live. Like I have things overlapping. I have to make a kind of a choice that might not be accurate because I can only do the one voicing at, at one time. Um, and so that to me becomes one of the sort of ways in which I hold the audience, I hold the reader. It's like, you tell me, you do it. And uh, you know, the poems from Black Automaton, my second book, and this is something I've talked about a lot, um, you know, have this kind of way of kind of like speeding all over the page and scattering. But the way I would read those readings was I would hand the book out or a photocopy and give somebody a pen and say, you sequence it, sequence it, tell me where to, where to start, tell me what you read next, tell me all of that. Um, and so that becomes like the way that I learned. I mean, I did these poems for about five years. That's where I learned that any reader, given a poem that's doing this, 
is going to suddenly make decisions. And we're making decisions when we read a conventionally formatted poem as well, right? That decision just doesn't necessarily come to us as, as agonized. But anybody who's ever looked at a poem that looks relatively conventionally configured, but is two columns, what's our first thought generally? Oh, is this a contrapuntal? Do I read it all the way across? Do I do like, oh, okay, no, the sentence doesn't make sense if I read it all the way across. So I think this is two separate things. Like we're making these kinds of decisions. It's just that most of the time we encounter what we might consider a conventionally formatted poem. We go, remember your training, start at the left if you're reading in English and then make your way across and go back to the left, boom, and do that. And that's what the writer has done to make it so that poem reads to you more often than not, right? And so for me, that kind of question of uh, performance typography, like with everything, if I'm trying to do something visually or aesthetically, then I have to do it sort of conceptually and you know compositionally. If I tell you, you can start anywhere in this poem, right? If I tell you, you can start anywhere in this poem, and yet I'm still kind of basically saying the left top corner is the, is the beginning and the right bottom corner are the end, then I'm actually not doing what I told you I was doing. And so that has transformed the way I can compose a poem where they become constellative. Like there's something about the structure um, of the idea of the constellative that I find enormously just beautiful and, and seductive in a way, right? Like how can we create this meaning that sort of accretes, but only accretes by the way we connect it to other things within that field. It is constantly dynamic and constantly changing because this time you could read it here and then jump here and then jump here and jump here, jump here. But I have to create text that can be both fractal, right? A sort of thing like if you read this, you're getting the poem. You can read this and stop. But also it's not simply repeating itself. It's re-repeating but revising in your actual reading of it. And the scary thing about that is like most time when I'm composing poems like that, I don't know if I got shit going until about 75% of the poems down on the page. So I'm doing all of this stuff and hoping something sticks. But it usually takes until I find that one passage or that one collaged element that acts as a kind of reverberant glue, right? That draws it all together. Um, it doesn't mean that that piece has to come first. It doesn't have to be at the top left. It doesn't have to be the title. It doesn't have to be bigger than everything else. But if it's in that field, then I've given the audience, the reader in my head, which is, you know, what I'm composing based on, I've given them what they need to understand or to feel the chime between this portion over here and this portion over here and this portion over here. And that's just about multiplicity. It's about surrendering like I did in those readings where I'd pass around Black Automaton because I've never seen that sequencing before. So I'm literally going to be at my reading trying to find where you put fucking number five. I'm looking, I've stopped reading. I'm like, where's five? Where's five? Oh, there's five. Oh, like we, it's to surrender a certain kind of mastery. The performative typography is to surrender a certain kind of mastery um, and to share that mastery, but sharing it puts responsibility on the hands of the reader or the audience. What are you going to bring to this poem? Um, and that to me becomes sort of like another way of configuring the social relation that you talked about so early in this evening. If I just said this then, it would have been much like 
Mas que cura. <laughs> Ooh, can, can, I, can, I, can, I, can I ask a question that's from the chat? Because I think there's one that was looking for, 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 some, for some clarification. Right. And thank you all for jumping in and all that kind of stuff. Um, Susan Lippman just left. Um, so now I don't have to do it. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. 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 But uh, yeah, this is, this is, uh, and just in case other people are feeling similarly, this is a discomforting notion that the work is given its value by an external presence. Is that what you mean to say, or am I not understanding this relationship between artist and audience? So if we go back to kind of thinking about the poem being sort of activated, it's not finished. Right. So I think, so I think that if we're talking about a poem being finished, that's not a question of value. So I don't think that that has to be involved in the space of it. But but what we're saying is, um, if we're talking about the value that I'm speaking about, when we're sort of triangulating the poem and the poet in a um, in a reading context, um, the poet, the, the audience, and this is how I think the power exchange goes whenever we like do a reading like that. Um, the audience is making what I call a Christie Critico um, uh, engagement. So Christie Critico would be judgment and criticality. So judgment, decision, accusation, and criticality. Um, so they're going to hear your poem. They are deciding as they listen to your poem whether they like your poem or not. They're deciding whether, when they listen to your poem um, whether they feel you're a good poet or not, whether or not they like the poem, are you, are you good at your job, right? You're good at this task, right? Are you good at this avocation? And their response to it is going to be affected by that judgment, right? Um, and this is what I think so many poets use, uh, the kind of banter where they're introducing the poem and describing why they wrote it and what it comes from and why this all happened, because they're trying to lubricate that process of judgment. They're trying to tell the audience, no, there was a real process. This is a sestina. Sestinas are really hard. So I wrote a sestina, but then I did this. Or they say, oh, this is an acrostic. So I did this process. Or they say, I worked really hard on this because I thought about something sad that happened. And so I decided to write this. I started writing this about five years ago. So all of those tactics, yes, on the one level, they're, they're there to edify, right? But they're also there to say, hey, hey, I know what I'm doing. This is, this is fine. This is, this is great. What you're about to encounter is quality made work. And all that does is lubricate this process of judgment um, because how many of us have had a poem that was somehow complicated in its composition and we don't feel like we could just read the poem. Mm -hmm. We have to almost make an excuse for the poem. Um, and this is something that I wrote, that I write about that. Um, banter accommodates and expedites this creasy critical function by laying bare slash breaking down, which we could think of as stripping and taking apart, the poem as a site of motivations and procedurals for the poet. Thus, the poet takes on the conflicting role of witness slash criminal debunker slash magician, craftsperson slash seer, critic slash artist. And this is all as prolepsis, a preemptive defense against or accommodation for the audience's evaluation. Now, I'm not saying it's like we all some sellout shit, but I'm saying that that urge to situate your audience in the poem by talking about what you've done is there to help them enjoy your poem. And so, therefore, is a way of creating a crazy critical interaction. Um, and so that, to me, is what I'm talking about when I talk about that, that external, the audience is evaluating at the reading. But I don't think that the value of a poem is necessarily tied to the external 
to the external presence when we're talking about the reader completes the poem, right? Because right. again, like there is value in incompletion. So I would just push back on that term, but I think that's how I'm atomizing that question. And I'm so sorry, Susan missed that because I feel like that was a very good explanation. And I'm like, I feel really proud of myself right now. You did, you did, you did well, you did well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's also very interesting to me, too, that it's not just the audience members uh, kind of evaluative process of the poem itself. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. But of the entire kind of category and endeavor and definition of poetry, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. everything that has ever come before them mm -hmm. uh, in however way poetry has come before them, you know, mm -hmm. in you know, pedagogically, you know, canonically, right? Like there's all of these different things. And then it also helps to recalibrate anything that comes after, right? Mm -hmm. So that that moment of banter, you know, isn't, I mean, it's site specific and poem specific, but it's also doing this other kind of big work uh, and it's, it's, it's lubrication. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> would you like to be unmuted? <laughs> Would you like to speak? I want, I want Laura up in this piece. Okay. <laughs> There's been a request for Laura to be up in this piece. Please, Peter. I don't know if we can do a, a global unmute, Peter, uh, so that it's it's not hand-picked voices I'm curating. <laughs> <laughs> right. As, as you said. I mean, but that's what you're curating. You can talk and you can talk. Um, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, it'd be great. Uh, I know that we're going a bit over. Um, we can get a little bit into to kind of in the in the interest of simultaneity, right? A little bit of mm -hmm. party chatter, banter mode um, be, before uh, we say goodnight. So it's it's, it's happening. <laughs> I I just wanted to say congrats on Optic Subwoof. Can I ask a a question? I'm sure. so I'm so interested in the title. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's oh, thank up you. with the title? So the title actually came from the essay, the, the lecture Red, 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 which is about putting down violence in poetry. And I was describing the work of a former mentee of mine now. I mean, like she was fire when she started, but like, but, like, but now, bye Sharon, thank you. Uh, but now um, like has a, a really exciting career as the playwright Alicia Harris. Um, and she started doing these kinds of poems that we're using. Oh, I'm getting some kind of, oh, well, we're getting the feedback cycle. I hear it, yeah. Oh, it's, um, it's handled. Oh, cool, thank you. Um, uh, that used, uh, you know, sort of type, what she calls experiments in typography. Um, and I described those as a kind of optic subwoof, a kind of way of suggesting sound um, visually, right? And so, you know, for a long, for a long time, the title of the book was going to be um, uh, where where was this line? It's from the it's from hashtag where oh yeah 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 the person moves to occupy the body of a wolf. That was going to be what the what the book was going to be called. Um, but I felt like there were a couple of already existing sort of long uh, titled uh, poem uh, collections with wolves in them. Interesting there. Um, there's just kind of feeling of that. Um, uh, so optic subwoof became this kind of play on so many of the kind of, of elements of the of the books. Like there's the first the first uh, lecture is 
um, You Better Hush, which is about visuality and visibility, as, as Tisa was pointing out. Um, so optic. Uh, the second the second lecture is um, um, hashtag werewolf goals. So the, the closest of sub wolf to sub wolf and under wolf. Um, um, and then, uh, you know, then with the red, 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 um, you know, this that feels less, I'm not going to try to tie that in because that just be bullshit. Like, it just felt like, like Optic Subwolf could cover two of those things, right? Like really well. Um, and then when I get to red, 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 red version, uh, then it kind of moves into the optical presentation. And then I killed and I died. Um, it's kind of like Subwolf, what's under the loudness, what's under the volume um, and what kind of guides that in the sense of, you know, like, like, you know, what is owed to the to the wolf, All right? So that's where it is. Thank you for your question. Oh yeah. <laughs> Did James want to say anything? You're oh, unmuted, James. Oh, just that I love you. <laughs> um, love you too, James. Really Good to see you. Appreciate the the book, um, because you know I I could say I I could say truthfully, um, that. You know, in being a novice poet, sometimes I feel sort of locked out of certain mm. because I'm not really clear, like you were pointing out the contrapuntal, for example, sometimes I'm not really clear what the artist wants me to do with this. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, I, and as much, and I, and I honor you and your work and, and honor your sort of encouraging and pushing artists like myself to sort of break the expectation of the page, I guess. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one of my, I guess, struggles um, is that I, I like my voice. <laughs> I, I like my work, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I have issues because I, I'm such a linear thinker that I have to figure out how to replate a poem on the page. Mm -hmm. on how to figure out how to not only just have the voice and the language work, but to have mm -hmm. it work as well visually and provide something. And mm -hmm. you've been a great, interesting teacher to me because I'm very attracted to both your voice and visual presentation of poems. And sometimes the graphic hip hop sample, you know, mm -hmm. collages that you did sometimes made me feel like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. I don't even know exactly how to read this. But your book was the beginning of the key to, to sort of like help me re-see what it is that was already in front of me. So that's just a, an appreciation. And I don't know if you want to respond to any of that. But again, I just love you. Man, I love you too, man, James. No, first of all, I, the, the idea of replating, like, as it moves, that's, y'all, please let's quote James Cagney like that's like 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 right because like, I, like, I was spinning the steel and I was just like re yeah. replate that's good it's like okay <laughs> let me remember where it came from I ate in a fancy restaurant recently so that's what I'm <laughs> hey that's all right replating right you know you should, you should do more fancy restaurant eating um so for me the thing that uh kind of occurred to me when I went because Evie Shockley invited me to this um uh conference, like a symposium about visuality and, vis and visibility. And what kind of came to me was that I was looking for 
that was keying off of this idea of recognition, like recognize, right? And so, you know, like I'm, I'm from the West Coast um, and like, you know, in terms of gang slang, you know, like, or just West Coast slang, South, especially like South LA, Long Beach, those kind of regions, you know, people say something like, you better recognize, right? You better recognize. And the I, and what's in you better recognize is a threat on the one hand, which is like, do you see, do you know who I am? Act like, and so it becomes another way of kind of saying, act like you know. Right. I love when slang kind of like recapitulates these kinds of conceptual formulations, like act like, you know, you better recognize like all of that. Right. Similarly, the phrase you better hush, the sentence you better hush. Right. Which has this idea of you need to do this. And specifically in the example of that song, that old song, it's like if you don't if you're not quiet, you're not going to hear the call. So. I'm not threatening you, but if you don't hush, you're going to miss the call and then the world <laughs> is going to threaten you, right? So I was really interested in this point of recognition, right? And I talked earlier about like folk culture and when we can kind of tell that we're reading this thing, uh, <clears throat> even when the words have been substituted. And the thing about recognition is like all forms of allusion or reference, it's a call to a specific person in some ways. It's a call for them to see something, right? But this idea of recognition being more important to me than I have now comprehended, apprehended, and broken down the poem. Like, I am looking at this and I know some, I know something's happening. I have a feeling for what's happening. And is that thing that's happening something that's bigger than the poem itself? Right. I think of this line from a Carl Hancock Rucks poem, another person who was really important to me early on. Um, and he says, like, <clears throat> you know, they don't know what's happening to them. They just know something's happening to them. Like that sort of sense of like, you know, even when you don't know, you know. <laughs> and so that's been this kind of way that I've been trying to move in these poems so that when you are looking at this poem, you go, what the hell? But then all of a sudden you see through it, you know, a, a line from a Beyonce song. Then it's like, OK, I see that. I see that. I see that. What's happening there? How can I zero in on that? And also reminds me of something that Fred Moten talked about when he was and it's kind of like Moten and Mullen. Like, like I, I carry each of their water. I just walk behind them and just, <laughs> I have a little parasol. And get hot. Um, <clears throat> Bentley Farnsworth, that joint. Um, but when Fred Moten wrote B. Jenkins, which is this kind of elegiac uh, book to his, to his mother, he did an interview in Callaloo in 2004 issue of like the new poets. Like, so they, all the, they do an interview and they have the pages. And he said that even though his mother read those poems in B. Jenkins, it was like, I don't know what's happening. What am I supposed to be you know, withdrawing for this? How am I supposed to do it? He said that he hoped that she would recognize scenes, images out of their window, the name of a song playing through. So instead of it being this kind of thing where I'm going to kind of pin down the memory for Fred Moten, it was like, I actually want to draw you into the poem because you're having these moments where you go like, oh, that, that, yes, that, right? And then there is this almost a sort of transactional, and I don't mean that negatively, but like a transactional between the reader and the, and the, and the writer of like, here's the secret. And we don't talk about allusion typically as a secret. We talk about it as something that locks us out. But if we're telling the, a secret to the audience, it's a different feeling of intimacy 
than the kind of proving grounds, the erudition of the allusion, right? So like, you know, I love a good allusion. Like I've grown up listening to hip hop, like it's full of allusion, right? So I, I love that. Reference is dope too. Um, but for me, it was trying to find that spot of recognition. So you see what's happening. So even if you look at one of those collage poems, you go, that looks like bathroom graffiti. They're like, yes, all right. So what do we, so if you know that, then suddenly you're thinking, well, if I look at this here, this here, that here, it's not a single story. There's sometimes like some back and forth, but it's a bunch of different things that come together to signify the space I'm in, right? And I recognize that. Yeah, polyvocality as is, 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 is T's just put into the, uh, so that's kind of what I'm thinking, right? That's what I'm thinking. So, you know, when I replate um, at some level, it's like taking all of the things that would make a plate of, you know, Callaloo, but shaping it, <laughs> shaping it to look like it's a hamburger, right? So you kind of look and go like, I don't know, wait, okay, that's a burger, but it's not? Like, what's And it's huh? very green. And it's yeah. very green. <laughs> <laughs> but this actually gets me to what you write in, and I know that, Peter, we, we need to break. I'm so <laughs> aware of that. Um but in one of the lectures here, it's the longer, I think it's in red, 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 red. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, yeah, it definitely is. When you're talking about David Dabidine's poem, Turner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm just, I'm going to just wrap it up real quick. It's on, it, for those of you who have the book, I'm talking about page 122. And basically, um, Douglas is talking about David Dabidin, who's an excellent, excellent Guyanese poet, but who is also absolutely important to me um, for this out of a woefully out of print book called Hogarth's Blacks. Mm -hmm. I learned to read paintings in a particular way that is absolutely important to unexplained presence from him. And I'm not sure that I actually gave him the shout out he deserved in that book. So I'm doing it now. But anyway, David Dabby Dean's poem Turner is an ekphrastic poem about a painting by J.M.W. Turner called The, um, the Slave Ship. Um, and there's a wonderful excerpt from uh, Turner in uh, Doug's lecture. And then Doug ends by saying, Dabby Dean remembers this horror you know, the horror of the slave ship, uh, the, the the bodies that are figured and the chains and the horses and the fiery water. Mm -hmm. Dabby Dean remembers this horror and the lives preceding it through the collage subjectivities of his new speakers, right? Uh, and so mm -hmm. this poem also bears quite a relation to uh, M. Norbessie Phillips's song, mm -hmm. right? And in mm -hmm. fact, some people kind of use Turner's The Slave Ship as a kind of a stand-in um, for what we don't know and can't ever see of the Zong except through um, these poems. Um, and I guess I'm just flagging that up and thinking about it, not just to circle back to collage, but to think about replating and remembering and what mm -hmm. you just described uh, Fred Moten saying uh, mm -hmm. in that interview mm -hmm. about what he said to his mom, like I was hoping that you would recognize Absolutely. these scenes through our window and that's the kind of replating but also a kind of remembering of, of reconstituting of a kind of the collective memory and shared you know kind of cosmic body if you will or Absolutely. you know so Absolutely. that 
remembering and collage as uh, I, I hesitate to use these words like remedy or repair and healing because they're so fraught. Um, but for optic subwoof and mm -hmm. it's, you know, focus and concern with violence, um, you know, these movements and meditations through and about collage um, and remembering uh, is so really so important and so kind of anchoring as as a as a work across all of the lectures uh, and, and it's just you know kind of virtuosic and and it's an amazing book thank you thank you very much Tisa no it's yeah this was a yeah I, I enjoyed the process of, of 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 this book and just getting a chance to sort of think and share I mean that's the call of the the Begley right they're like saying what interests you as a poet what's fed your poetry and there's just a lot of a lot of freedom in that um to make lectures that felt like my mind um and didn't necessarily feel like suddenly like you know that there was a way a lecture had to go precisely um and that was just there was just so much encouragement from you know from Ellen in that process, it was just great. Ah, uh, yep, 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 yep. What's up, y'all? Hey. Hey. Yep, yep, yep. yep. It's good to see y'all. Thank you again. And like, you know, I, I hope people heard the shout outs earlier, but I will say <laughs> say them again. Um, you know, Helen's so support, you know, just shepherding through the process. Um, you know, Charlie just like reaching out through and saying like, hey, you're doing, you're doing great. Like, like, like you sent me a note and it was just sort of like, oh, phew. Yes, it cut through. And then Heidi, just, you know, all the folks over there, um, you know, just really appreciate y'all um, shepherding these works. And thank you, Tisa, for agreeing to do this. Thank and you. For coordinating your nails with it because that's the best thing a poet could ever hope that their book would, <laughs> which would spark sartorial needs. And, it and helps me you. think. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm with it. And thank you, Peter, for hosting. You know, yeah, thank you. Thank you all. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us. It was a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> well, I, I, I could listen to the both of you all night long. <laughs> My little gray cells are bursting right now in a One really day, good way. Somewhere outside under some heaters in a spring in a city somewhere, may we gather and break bread and have libations and really do the things that kind of keep us vitally engaged that would be great peter so thank you well, you got a rain check together so yes we, we'll, right. we will do this live maybe you know over the summer at kerouac alley who knows something all right we will do something we don't <laughs> order yeah. a picture of sangria or you know yes we'll make a little kaufman sand lot yeah. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> to use laura mimosa monte's words uh, tonight was a revelation uh, and so really much gratitude to you both also for you in the audience thanks for helping complete the circle as always a very big shout out to Catherine at wave for all of her in making tonight happen thank you Catherine. Uh, city lights carries a full selection of wave books we love them you can check them out at citylights.com or better yet you know if you're in the hood con down browse our stacks we are open uh we're located in san francisco's historic north beach district we're open seven days a week monday through thursday 11 to 8 and then friday through sunday 11 to 9 actually we're slowly getting back to pre-pandemic hours 
Uh, we are a publishing house as well as a bookstore, still publishing poetry, literature and translation, uh, and much, much more. I uh, just published a book by Will Alexander, which is really, really awesome. Also, some new literature and translation from Gabriel Aleman. So check out our stuff. Ooh. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, keeping me employed. Also, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everybody. We love you. Best for the season. Hope to see you all again very soon. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.